Welcome to the Foresight Health Roundup podcast, Foresight Health's podcast series for healthcare revolutionaries. Outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Hello again, everyone. This is Dave Berta, news editor at Foresight Health. It is Thursday, December 15th. There are so many delivery trucks racing around my neighborhood, it's dangerous to cross the street. How did we ever do our Christmas shopping before home delivery? Oh, I know. We actually left the house, went to a store or shopping mall, and paid in cash. You remember, stores, shopping malls, cash. Speaking of paying for things, that's what we're going to talk about on today's show, paying for care. One of our favorite topics, if not our favorite topic on the Roundup. To tell us whether we're getting our money's worth are Dave Johnson, founder and CEO of Foresight Health, and Julie Merchinson, partner at Transformation Capital. But before we say hello to Dave and Julie, I wanted to say hello to the sponsor of the Foresight Health Roundup podcast, Infor. By connecting the business and mission sides of healthcare, institutions can enhance staff experience and simplify patient interactions. With data-driven insights and greater operational control, our sponsor, Infor, supports your company in making healthcare a calling again for your staff. Hi, Dave. Hi, Julie. How are you guys doing this morning? Dave? With its ridiculously high COVID transmission rates right now, I'm just glad I'm not in China. Experts think as many as 800 million people could become infected in the next 90 days. That's 10% of the world's population. All things considered, I, I'd just much rather be in Chicago in the wintertime. Wow, that that's saying something. Thanks, Dave. Julie, how are you? Well, I wasn't going to go down the code route, but I will say that I, for those of you who know, I enjoy a little bit of a mask meme. I've been taking some more pictures lately. Masks are back. Back on the ground, right? Back on the ground. That's right. Oh, boy. Right. Yeah, our uh, our boys are back from school and, you know, they give you free flu shots. So I picked them up in the car yesterday. I'm like, okay, you guys get your flu shots, right? They're like, no. <laughs> so guess what they're doing today? Yeah, before we uh, talk about value-based reimbursement, I wanted to ask you about your shopping habits. Dave, do you do most of your holiday shopping online or in person at a real store? Come on, Dave, get into the modern age. Telebanking is banking. Telemedicine is medicine. A virtual store is a real store. Shopping is shopping. Not only for the holidays and maybe except for groceries, but even there sometimes, I do as much of it virtually as I can. The selection, convenience, and value-based pricing are unbelievable. All right. A true believer. Thanks, Dave. Uh, Julie, how about you? Are you shopping from the comfort of your own home or are you going to, well, I was going to say a real store, but I'll say a physical store. There you go. To buy, there you go. You got it. Okay. <laughs> to buy real presents this year. Well, I'm not doing any of it in time, so that's a problem. But I will say that I was at the mall earlier this week one evening, and there was not a parking space to be found. So people are really still in the big boxes. Really? Okay. There you, there you go, Dave. Thanks, Julie. What struck me when I thought about this question is how much seeing your doctor has become like shopping. You know, in each case, you now have a choice of doing it from your kitchen table or in person. So that's pretty cool. So it is all about customer choice, as it should be. Now let's talk about something else that should be but isn't, and that's value-based reimbursement or alternative payment models. A new research brief in health affairs 
basically was a primer on APMs, but it did have some interesting stats in it, uh, most notably how much different types of payers reimburse providers through APMs rather than through fee-for-service contracts. 58% of Medicare Advantage payments to providers flow through APMs. That's followed by traditional Medicare at 42.8%. Commercial payers at 35.5%, and Medicaid a smidge behind at 35.4%. Dave, does it surprise you that MA plans lead the way and commercial plans are the laggards? Uh, How do you think these percentages will change next year with providers reportedly seeking big rate hikes from payers? And where does this all leave patients? I'm going to rant a bit before answering your questions, Dave. It's hard not to get depressed reading the health affairs primer or primer, whatever it is. We know from a macro perspective that the U.S. spends far more per capita on healthcare expenditure than any other advanced economy. Yet, as the health affairs brief confirms, the massive attempts to reduce spending and improve quality have yielded, at best, minuscule results. If we throw in all the costs and time related to designing, implementing, and measuring the success of all the advanced payment models, it wouldn't surprise me that the aggregate net benefit of APMs is actually negative. My favorite quote from the health affairs study is the first sentence from its conclusion. Here it is. The relatively modest results of CMMI's value-based payment models may be related more to challenges in design and implementation than to the fundamental approach. How long does it take to get it right? Now, of course, we're adding health equity to the design and implementation of APMs. While entirely appropriate, this will add even more complexity and probably even slow progress further in achieving tangible cost savings. Shakespeare could write a tragedy about APMs. It would be full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. What is clear is that the healthcare industrial complex is very good at what Muhammad Ali termed rope-a-dope, taking apparent body blows in a defensive crouch position and then striking back after opponents have exhausted themselves. Happens every day in healthcare. And don't we all feel tired? So having now ranted, let me briefly answer your questions. I'm not at all surprised that MA leads the way on APMs. When the dust settles, MA plans receive capitated payments for managing the healthcare risk of their members. So it's in their interest to drive down costs by eliminating unnecessary care and paying less for the care they actually do have to contract for. I'm actually surprised that the MA percentages on APMs aren't higher, although that may be simply because they're paying lower fee-for-service rates probably is what's going on. Your second question regarding the trend in APMs, given the request by providers for the huge rate hikes. First, it looks like the providers are largely hitting a brick wall with the request for big rate increases. The sequester negotiations going on in Congress now regarding healthcare payment adjustments will provide a clear signal over the next month or so. Having said that, I think APM percentages will continue to increase but that won't necessarily lead to a decline in costs. At best, it will slightly reduce the rate of increase. This isn't the type of reform U.S. healthcare needs, but it's the only type of reform we're going to get from incumbents. Finally, where does this leave patients? It's still caveat emptor time, Dave, for consumers. 
let the buyer beware. There's more data transparency on healthcare pricing, so it makes sense to shop around for elective care when you can. Unfortunately, consumers cannot trust the system writ large to do the right thing, to put patients' interests first. So all you healthcare consumers out there, be vigilant, very vigilant. Shakespeare and Latin. I love it. And Muhammad Ali. And Muhammad Ali. Very, very good, Dave. Thank you. Julie, any questions for Dave? It is too early for all this literary expertise. It's amazing. (laughs) So, Dave, let's talk about bundles. If you look at that one study that examined the results for the five most common medical bundles, congestive heart failure, pneumonia, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, sepsis, myocardial infarction, none of them were found to be statistically significant in savings. So what's going on with bundles? Where are we? Oh, more Shakespeare. Bundle, bundle, toil and trouble. <laughs> I hope that doesn't push you over the edge, Julie. <laughs> My God, I need some coffee. <laughs> anyway, the, the key phrase in your question is medical bundles. We know that surgical bundles for discrete episodes of care like joint and valve replacements work really well. The industry should move full speed ahead on surgical bundles to establish market-based price and outcome benchmarks. Level field competition will differentiate the high-quality, low-cost providers, and they will gain market share. Anybody notice how aggressively Tenant is moving into the ambulatory surgery business? But medical bundles, the kind you're referencing, Julie, are much more complex because they involve ongoing management of chronic conditions. It's hard to get all the factors right in the payment calculation. I'm not an expert here, but my instincts tell me that capitation-based payment in a population health sense to manage the health of specific populations would be more effective. Three of the conditions you referenced relate to cardiac disease, and the industry is getting much better at monitoring patients with those conditions. Capitation lends itself to better preventive care, better monitoring, and proactive interventions when necessary. We need to do all that and then manage any acute interventions like a hawk in terms of right care, right time, right place, and right price, if we're ever going to move the needle in any material way on bundles for surgery and and capitation for pop health. Got it, Dave. Thanks. Now let's talk about another report on value-based care. This one, the Annual State of Population Health Survey from Numeroffin Associates. The report is based on a survey of about 300 provider executives. And here's what they had to say. 80% said population health-based payments will be critically or very important to the future success of their organization, but only 25% said they were very or completely prepared to accept such payments. 38% said the pandemic will accelerate the acceptance of risk-based capitated contracts, but more than half of the respondents said their organizations don't have any of those. And they cited the threat of financial loss as the biggest obstacle to accepting population-based risk contracts. Julie, does this match what you're hearing in the field? Can we expect more of the same action speaks louder than words in 2023? And what can market innovators do to break this logjam? Well, clearly value-based care is going through a rocky period or sliding sideways or taking a big hit, whatever phrase you want to apply. But you know, with health systems endeavor to just purely survive. Innovators are circling around them, carving out all the positive margin services they have. And 
figuring out how to do some of this. So we're just, we're making the situation worse for health systems. So I'm not so sure that's going to make them come back with a vengeance and actually attack bio-based care in the next few years. So there's a lot of data in these reports. It's a little bit mind-numbing. So I want to take a step back and make a few high-level observations. First, a lot of this is about population health in this report. And about one-third of respondents credit clinical cost and quality control as the reasons to pursue population health, while only 1% look at it as a revenue management or revenue predictability tool. So this says to me that we still aren't managing the business we're in, but instead we're managing to regulation, federal state programs, or ratings. So we're still following kind of the new shiny dollar bill, if you will. My second observation is about three quarters of respondents think that they're improving physician variation and quality, while two-thirds think that physician variation and cost is average or below average. So again, <laughs> we're focused on quality and we're not focused on cost. It's a problem. It's bad. So the last observation I think is interesting is about social determinants of health. And this is more of a history lesson from my experience. Once upon a time in the tens, as my kids now call it, we used to talk about whether it was the healthcare industry's responsibility to fund social needs or whether someone else in society should do that. Is that something healthcare as an industry really could afford to take on? Healthcare was kind of shunning the responsibility given the already low margins. Fast forward, value-based care has inspired us to basically take this on and spend a fortune on serving these needs, but the value-based care contracts and kind of the payment model isn't quite there. So Healthcare is either going to have to figure out new business models or seek other sources of funding because the whole person management model is just lagging. And the survey found that the number of healthcare organizations offering more SDOH services is significantly higher than in 2016. 55% offering food pantries and nutritional programs, 57% offering transportation, 35% offering housing and community development support. I mean, these are big numbers. So My theory is that health systems are doing a lot more with less and desperately need the tools to understand the value that they're creating. This is not a popular example, for sure. But if you just look at what Cerberus, a big private equity firm that may or may not really be in it for the right reasons, they bought a New England system, turned it into Steward Healthcare, and Steward became one of the leading ACOs in the CMS program because... They followed the money and did very few specific things and saved a ton of money. So again, I'm just not sure that we're always focused on the right thing. Right. Good care is good business. It's not really that complicated. Thanks, Julie. Dave, any questions for Julie? Well, I love that steward example at the end, Julie, because they have proven, I mean, arguably, Cerberus bought Caritas Christi. It was the worst health system in America. I mean, I mean, they couldn't give it away literally to any of the nonprofits. And they turned themselves into a high-quality, low-cost community health care provider in Massachusetts. And it's been a source of embarrassment, I think, for all the academic centers in Massachusetts to have to look at Stewart and compete with them. Um, so great, great example. I don't know what you thought about the results of the Numeros survey of C-suite provider executives. But for me, the news was was somewhere between bad news and worse news. All these executives are talking about risk-based contracts, but few are doing anything meaningful about preparing for them. Those that have generally lose money administering them. And I'm not sure if 
it's hypocrisy or ignorance or incompetence or some combination of those. What I do know is that as long as you're coding for healthcare and doing fee-for-service, capitation doesn't seem to work. So here's my question, Julie. At what point do we say, you know, enough already. Let's let the payers take the capitated risk and then contract with providers for specific services delivered. That's essentially what MA plans do now. You know, it's not like providers haven't had time to adapt their business models to accommodate capitated contracts. To date, all they've proven is they're not good at managing capitated risk. So let's stop pretending that someday providers will find nirvana. Let's force them to compete exclusively on price outcomes and customer service, a little like Stuart was doing in your example. What do you think? Should we just stop pretending? Yeah. So we just have a lot of political, a lot of political will in this situation. Dave, I don't know if you remember earlier this year, there was that big group of lawmakers that were urging Biden to end drug contracting because the model was a privatization tactic that removed you know, millions of seniors from traditional Medicare without their knowledge or consent. Like we've a lot of politicians trying to prevent what could be a good financial decision for the country. And we have at the same time, I think there were some Obama appointees that really wanted CMS to continue the ACO model and continue value-based payment, which may be frankly our lack of understanding math. I don't know. But your question is a good one because in that numeral survey, there was a high percentage of payers who said that they're completely ready and willing to enter into agreements with payments tied to outcomes. So payers are ready to do this, and payers actually are doing this with some of the smaller innovative novel care models. So we haven't been able to make the math work in whether it's APMs, any kind of APM, right? So I, I tend to agree with you, but we have a long way to go still on transparency, So I don't know. We don't have all the data we need maybe in all the right places to do this, or we just don't have the political will. I just don't think you can turn an elephant into a gazelle. And I'm increasingly coming to the conclusion that our providers are are elephants and it's going to take some pretty strong market-based moves on the payer front to really change behaviors. And I think more of the change is going to come from outside in than inside out. And that's a, a fairly sad conclusion um, to reach, but that that's kind of where I am. Uh, Julie, I kind of sense it. Yeah, it's already happening. Yeah, you're you're in the same place. So It's happening all over the place from the outside in. Definitely takes a different mindset driven by a different payment model to make providers want to keep you healthy rather than uh, treat you when you're sick. Uh, here's an example. I, I got my first shingles vaccine in August, and I'm supposed to get the second dose two to six months after that. It's been four months and counting and no reminder note or text from my doctor's office. So it's on me to remember. And uh, you know me, I can't remember what I had for dinner last night. So uh, we're basically on our own until the payment system changes. Thanks, Dave. Oh, wait, I have an example on that, though. Let's hear it. My friends at One Medical send me reminders, have a big red note in my portal that I'm due for my shot. So our friends at Amazon are going to fix this problem. This is not rocket science. We'll see. I think uh, I'm afraid we could do this exact same show next year. All right. Let's briefly talk about what else happened this week that's worth noting. Julie, any news this past week that tickled your fancy? 
Well, if it's not going to be Elizabeth Holmes, my other favorite topic is Epic. <laughs> so I don't know if you saw that Epic temporarily shut down its app market, which by the way is enormous. And they're saying that the redesigned app market will only serve users that meet the Epic seal of approval. So that's a lot of control. Sounds to me like Epic is creating kind of a tiered pay-to-play app access market. And frankly, making decisions for health systems instead of letting those health systems make their own decisions. I think they're doing it for the wrong reasons. That's great. Thanks, Julie. Dave, what other news caught your attention? We're from Epic and we're here to help. That's all it. I took away from Julie's comment there. Oh my God. <laughs> well, for those who haven't seen it yet, the New York Times published its third of four articles in its investigative series on nonprofit health systems. Like the others, this one is brutal. It focuses on Ascension Health's labor practices, how understaffing impacts patients, and the high salaries paid executives. More evidence that nonprofit health systems and hospitals are losing the narrative battle for the hearts and minds of the American people. Greedy nonprofits is starting to stick. It's going to take dramatic, dare we say, revolutionary transformation to make it go away. Time to start taxing them, Dave. I'm telling you. Right? <laughs> there you go. You're on that. Thanks, Dave. And thank you again, Julie. And thanks again to our sponsor, Infor. Infor connects the business and mission sides of healthcare, enhancing the staff experience and simplifying patient interactions with data-driven insights and greater operational control. That is all the time we have for today. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed on today's show, please visit our website at foresighthealth.com. And don't forget to tell a friend about the Foresight Health Roundup podcast. Subscribe now and don't miss another segment of the best 20 minutes in healthcare. Thanks for listening. I'm Dave Berta for Foresight Health.